Well, good afternoon, and uh, thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, Social Security, uh, a topic that, that, in my opinion, probably doesn't get as much attention as it, as it should, uh, but hopefully we'll uh, do our small part to, to change that with our, our presentation today. Uh, we have a really impressive panel of speakers, so I'm going to be very, very short in my introductions here. Uh, no disrespect to the the very uh, distinguished careers of, of our panelists, uh, but I, I know you'd rather hear from them than, than hear from me. So we'll get right into it with our, uh, our first speaker, Congressman uh, or former Congressman Jim Colby. Uh, Congressman Colby is currently serving as the Senior Transatlantic Fellow for the German Marshall Fund, uh, where he advises them on uh, trade matters as well as issues of effectiveness of U.S. assistance to foreign countries. Uh, he also serves as an adjunct professor in the College of Business at the University of Arizona. He uh, previously served here in Congress for 22 years as a member of the House. Um, that was from 1985 to uh, 2007. He represented uh, the 8th District of Arizona and uh, served for an impressive 20 years on the uh, House Appropriations Committee, including uh, uh, as chair for uh, four years of the Treasury, Post Office, and Related Agency Subcommittee, and six years as chair of uh, foreign op I'm sorry, the Foreign Operations, Export Financing, and Related Agencies Subcommittee. He also, in my opinion, he, he just stood out as, as somebody who uh, had a tremendous amount of courage, both, both he and, and Congressman Stenholm, uh, as a tremendous amount of courage talking about Social Security issue when everybody considered the third rail of politics and not many politicians uh, really had the will to, to take it on as, as an issue that, pre that uh, presents a tremendous number of challenges to our country. Uh, with that, I'll turn things over to Congressman Colby. Thank you very much. Thank you, Grant, and thank you for the kind words, um, especially the comment about uh, courage. You notice that neither Charlie or I are still in Congress anymore, so that may tell you something right there. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and talking. This is a kind of deja vu all over again, isn't it, uh, Charlie? How many times have you and I been on platforms like this, mostly here in Congress, but I'll, elsewhere around the city and around the country to talk about some of uh, about the uh, social security issue and it became something that both Charlie and I felt passionately about uh, and I'm going to let him talk a little bit more about how we developed it and how it came about and you've read uh, I think uh, if you have had a chance to look at the book that Jagdish uh, has has written it's uh, it's exceptionally good especially the chapter that deals with the uh, Colby Stenholm Boyd uh, proposed legislation. It's fair. It's balanced. Uh, everything about it is just exactly what you ought to be reading. So I certainly commend you to go out and buy a copy of the book here uh, and get it and read it. But seriously, it's kind of fun to see in a, in a book form all this discussion about a proposal that you worked on some time ago. It's also, as I was rereading this section last night, it also reminds me, it's a little bit like a foreign language, the longer, the more distance you are from it, the more you forget about it. And I was rereading the 14 points, and he says, yeah, that's right, we had this piece in there, didn't we? So there's a lot in there that I had uh, not focused on very specifically for quite some time. Uh, but I think, again, it is an ex it's a very good book, which I think really lays out some policy alternatives. Uh, and I, I certainly commend you the, the section on the uh, Colby Stenholm a legislation, but I'm not going to try to go into the specifics of the legislation to talk about these policy alternatives you're going to hear from Jagdish. I want instead just to talk a little bit about the realm of the politics of the possible. Is, is reform possible and how might it come about? And I'll do it in the context of what Charlie Stenholm and I started to do 15 years ago in 1995 when we took up the cudgel and created the the, uh, uh, the Public Pension Reform Caucus, that's what we didn't dare call it, Social Security Reform Caucus, so we called it the Public Pension Reform Caucus. Uh, and, and there were, I think, in looking back on it, reflecting on this, I think there were certain assumptions and certain principles that we had. And I'm just wanna, I just want to share those with you rather than anything about the specifics of the legislation. The first assumption that drove uh, Charlie and I and then later Alan Boyd, who is equally as, as important in this whole process, to, to go forward with this was the assumption that the Social Security system was broken. And it's on a long-term downward path 
uh, towards fiscal, more fiscal irresponsibility, more fiscal damage uh, to the country. So it's not something that is just a, a, a short-term fix. It's not something that uh, in 1983 we had the public, the, the Social Security Reform Commission, which did a tremendous job of fixing Social Security, but as we found out, it worked for roughly 20 uh, years or thereabouts. But now the time has run out on that. And it's not that we need something to do that again. It's something we need something that's even more long-term because the acceleration of the problems has gotten so much worse. So the first assumption is the system is broken. It needs reform. The second assumption, and this may be a leap of faith, but the second assumption is that the American people would respond favorably to the idea of reform if it is explained, if they understand it, and if they deem it to be a fair and balanced approach. Now, that's a, a lot of things, a lot of ifs in there that you've got to get. But uh, we believe that ultimately the American people can and will respond favorably to this. And I believe that's even more true today than it was then because I, the American people, I think, now understand, instinctively are understanding the nature of the fiscal problem that this country is facing. And you see it every day in the kind of responses uh, that are, is coming to Congress on some of these issues. So the American people would, would support it. And third, uh, and, and maybe most important, uh, is that a reform requires a congressional and presidential leadership. Can't do it without both of them. But you certainly can't do it without the presidential leadership. I mean, Congress can, can struggle all they want with proposals, but if you don't have the president with the bully pulpit willing to stand up there and take the lead on this and to push Congress to do it, it just isn't going to happen or isn't going to happen anytime in the foreseeable future. So those are the three kind of assumptions that we began with. Then there were some, some principles that I think we, we under, when we started our reform process that we used in drafting it. The first is that, which I've really kind of alluded to here in the assumption, first is the, return, the, the reform can't be short-term or even really medium-term, not even for what is the normal horizon of, of Social Security, which is 70 years, uh, two generations, because so many of the proposals you have out there go that far and then they kind of drop off a cliff at that point. So while you can't see much beyond 70 years, what we said is you've got to have something that looks all that way and then at least continues on that path in that direction after 70 years. That was principle number one. The second principle is, was that reform should be roughly even between benefit cuts and revenues, that fixing it required that you deal on both sides, with the revenue side and you deal also with, re, with reforms of the benefits and changes of the benefit structure. A third principle was that uh, you should not affect that the um, any reform should not affect the the benefits of current retirees or near retirees. I think politically that's just a, a a given that you really can't say to people that you're going to make major changes to their benefits. Now there was, and again if you read the book you'll this will become apparent to you there was an exception to that. And that was in the, the cost of living adjustment that affects all people. But that would, was an adjustment to that, an adjustment to the increases in the benefits they get, get not any kind of a decrease in the, in the benefits that they're receiving today. So that's third principle is that it should not affect uh, current retirees. Uh, the fourth was that our proposal had to be bipartisan, which is hence why Charlie and I sought each other out and all was said is we added one Republican, we would add a Democrat. If we added, uh, added one, we couldn't go any further until we found another Democrat before we could add another Republican. We wanted to keep it bipartisan. Hence, it was the Colby Stenholm, and then it was the Colby Boyd for the last uh, two years that I was uh, in Congress. And, and fifth, reform has to include uh, some sort of personal investment accounts. We just felt that uh, a reform that just tinkered around the edges of the current revenues or benefits structures and didn't make some kind of change that gave younger generations the view that the, think, the thought that they would somehow have a greater benefit from seeing the benefit cuts and the larger revenues are paying, if they didn't see that in the form of, of some kind of a, of a personal retirement account, 
that it really wasn't a reform. And I have to tell you that my view on that has certainly not changed with the current recession. Uh, if you, if you, people tell you that, they say, well, boy, the downturn in the economy sure shows that that's not a good point. Then they're violating principle number one, which is that this has got to be long-term because you're thinking about it in the very long term, and you should think you'd be thinking about retirement in the very long term, not what the market is doing uh, uh, today. And finally, I guess there is this assumption, and I've saved this last going back to an assumption, uh, that there will be political will. There will be the political will for reform on the part of both Congress and the executive branch. You have to have that assumption or else you don't even start down the path towards reform. What is, just briefly, what has changed since we left, Charlie and I left Congress? Well, the deterioration in the, in the quality of, uh, of the Social Security accounts has accelerated uh, dramatically. What was long-term is now midterm. What was midterm is now immediate crisis, a fiscal crisis that is on our hand. This is really a matter of our fiscal and financial uh, of survival in this country today. This is no longer an intellectual game that we're playing of isn't it fun to devise different kinds of ways to fix Social Security. <clears throat> Rather, it's devising a, uh, a, a reform that is going to work because we absolutely have to have it, and that's why the political will is more necessary than ever. I see an awful lot of very young people here, which is the normal thing on a Hill <coughs> Uh, staff uh, Monday uh, event, uh, and I, I wanted to say to you that you can't really hide behind your member on this. You can't hide behind your member and say, well, whatever my member wants, I will do. You have a responsibility. You're here today. I don't assume you didn't come for the lunch. I think you could do better uh, than, than this someplace else. You didn't come for the food here. So you came because you're interested in this, and you have a responsibility to talk to your member, you have a responsibility to help lead on this issue. You're in a unique position to help to address the way in which we go about this reform. And so my challenge to each and every one of you here is with your member, with the committee that you're on, with the organization that you're with, to help to lead this discussion, to get it moving forward and moving forward towards, uh, towards real reforms. Thank you. Thank you, Congressman. Uh, next up, we have uh, Cong former Congressman Stenholm, uh, the other half, as you guys have probably guessed, of the Colby Stenholm bill. Uh, former Congressman Stenholm is now a senior policy advisor at the Olson Frank Law Firm. Uh, he uh, previously served here in Congress for uh, a very distinguished and impressive 26 years. Uh, he, was the, he was a member of the Committee on Agriculture for that entire duration and was the committee's ranking Democrat for uh, the last eight years of his service here in Congress up until 2004. I think he uh, developed a really strong relationship in all his years here for reaching across the aisle, as we can see on this issue, but on many, many other issues as well, and uh, certainly made a name for himself as the co-chair of the Blue Dogs Committee, uh, the Blue Dogs Coalition, I'm sorry, and uh, on, on today's topic, Social Security Reform. <coughs> Congressman Sentinel. Thank you. <coughs> Delighted to be here. Take just a few minutes and uh, speak at you and may ta hopefully take a few questions about uh, Social Security. Uh, Jim uh, has uh, told you a little bit about how, uh, how we put our package together. I want to go a little bit further in that uh, when Jim uh, approached me uh, with the idea of a public pension reform caucus, uh, it immediately made a lot of sense to me, and I uh, accepted his hand and said, you bet, I'd love to work with you. Public pension reform caucus, you know, not just Social Security, that's one leg. You've got private retirement and you've got uh, public pension, other uh, uh, sort of pensions in which your basic retirement is, uh, is uh, fixed on. And so we started out there and we attracted the interest of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And they put together uh, what uh, I guess we called a commission put together some of the folks that were dealing with Social Security on a regular basis in their work and their expertise. Jim and I were part of that. And as the compromises moved forward, compromises, you know, compromise is not a four-letter word. Uh, it, that's part of the problem that we're having on a lot of problems in this building, in this town, and this beautiful building across the street. 
an unwillingness to compromise. Uh, Everybody's got their idea of how to fix it, and it's gotten too politicized to fix it because you can't, you got to get 218 votes, 51 votes, or 60 votes, and a presidential signature to make it happen. Well, that was the spirit in which Jim and I began to work on this. For example, early on, I know Cato played a big role in, in this bill from my standpoint. Uh, even though their approach was total privatization at the time. And I think Jim was kind of leaning a little bit toward that. The Chilean experience uh, was there. <clears throat> but total privatization uh, was a non-starter politically, uh, except for those that totally believe in it. So then we came up with a compromise, individual accounts in which you take uh, 3% of the first $10,000, 2% of everything else up to a, a level, and allow an individual to put that into a private account patterned after what members of Congress and staffs and members of Congress have available to them. Uh, And I'm just like Jim. Uh, People say, well, aren't you glad you didn't pass that? Look at the collapse of the economy. Look at what's happened to the 401Ks. And I said, it has nothing to do with what we were proposing because I was proposing it for my grandchildren. And my grandchildren, my oldest one, is now 15. And therefore, what happened last year is not affecting him on iota. And now we have uh, three additional grandchildren. And so my involvement in this kind of speeded up over the years uh, in saying that we had to change it for their benefit, not for my benefit, not even for my children's benefit, but from the standpoint of my grandchildren and gradually we ultimately became part of a group called For Our Grandchildren in which we tried to pick up the cudgel to... uh, build political support for doing something to ensure that there would be a Social Security system there for our grandchildren. Well, uh, fast forward now, because what were some of the things that made sense to me? In my district, uh, I had a rural district in West Texas. I had a large percentage of folks that were on or soon to be on Social Security. I never had a problem explaining to them the individual accounts and the fact that we we needed to... uh, as we did in our original bill, uh, increase the age in which you draw your Social Security. We chose 68 the first time. We backed off of that a little bit because, you know, I got attacked by the senior senator, uh, so-called conservative, Phil Graham, attacked me for having the guts, to, uh, you know, or the stupidity, wasn't guts, the stupidity uh, to increase the age in which you draw your Social Security. Well, it always made sense to me. When the Social Security system was first started, the average life expectancy was 64. You know, why did Congress select 65? You know, <laughs> well, the average life expectancy today is 76, 78 for women, uh, and it's increasing every day uh, it's, to some degree. So did it make sense to keep the same rules that were in thir- 1938 and move them into 2010? No, to me. Uh, and I think that still needs to be part of any kind of reform of Social Security. Speed up. Now we're going to 68. Speed it up. But don't affect anybody that's within 10 years of being affected. Always do it for my grandchildren because they can adjust to it. That's one of the, the uh, dishonest arguments that's made by my friends on the other side of this argument, always talking about what it's going to do to senior citizens. Nothing. Nothing. No one is suggesting doing anything to do anything as yet. I will in a moment about how it affects people my age today. Slowing the growth rate for upper upper income, you know, or increasing the tax rate on upper income, it's going to be in any kind of a package. But if you, that's all you do, then you're not going to pro, do, do what's necessary for the long-term interest of Social Security. Uh, I don't mind paying a little bit more taxes, increasing the a, the, uh, the limit for 100, 110, 150, 200. But the trade-off to me has always been the individual accounts. Again, remembering we're not talking about anybody 55 years of age or older. Uh, changing the COLA. <laughs> it's always been amazing to me how some folks, mostly in my party, use the COLA as sacred. Well... You know, a cost-of-living adjustment is wonderful to have if you got the money. But if you don't have the money, you know, then maybe you ought to take a look at it. And if the choice is borrowing money on our children and grandchildren's future, that becomes a problem to me that I can't, could not explain 
back home in, in my district. So I uh, have been this morning in a uh, meeting of the Pew Peterson uh, Commission, which Jim and I will, Jim's going to, will be going back to that uh, after we leave here in a moment. We're talking about the long-term challenges of the budget. And everyone that talks about the budget says, well, the real problems are in entitlements, and it's the health care, the Medicare, the Medicaid, and Social Security. True. If that's really where the problem is, then I ask my current members of Congress, what's the solution? You know, you, you're gonna, you're just going to tax more? Or are you going to do taxing more and cut spending and change the makeup? We came down uh, 15 years ago on the idea that there has to be a combination, there has to be a compromise reached in which you deal with the benefit side and you deal with the revenue side and you do it in a way that can still be explained to the, to the people that it makes sense and it accomplishes one major goal. Final point, <clears throat> you know, when Jim and I first started on this, we were talking about 2008 when the baby boomers are going to reach the age of 62, and uh, 2011, when they were going to reach the age of 65. Fifteen years ago, it was wonderful to talk about the challenges of the baby boom generation when we know we were going to have more people in the system. 2011 is next year, and Congress still has not addressed that problem, and that means that the, the uh, problem is a little more serious to fix today than it would have been 15 years ago. But our political system wouldn't let us do that. And uh, that's, uh, that's where I couldn't agree more. Uh, you have an obligation yourselves to look at this and to advise your bosses what you think. If your boss is like mine, and I know Alan Boyd very well and his staff is here, uh, you know, we welcome input. We welcome the challenges uh, for that, and it's why your generation is the one that's going to be part of the solution. And remember... No matter how many times people say cut Social Security, nobody's suggesting making any cuts on those that are on it today. But when we talk about the future of Social Security, the policy has to be something that will deal with my grandchildren. And if you folks are going to advise your member of Congress to do something to take care of my four grandchildren in a very adverse way, you're going to have me to answer to. Next up, we have uh, Jagadish Gokhale. Uh, Jagadish is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, an internationally recognized expert on entitlement reform. Uh, he pri previously served as a consultant to the U.S. Department of Treasury and as a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He was also the senior e economic advisor to the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland from 1990 to 2003. But the main issue he's here to talk to you uh, today about, of course, is uh, his book, uh, Social Security, a uh, fresh look at policy alternatives. It's uh, fresh off the presses from the University of Chicago, and uh, I think it provides a sobering, perhaps frightening, would be a more appropriate word, uh, look at what we're facing in terms of uh, Social Security. With that, I'll turn things over to Jackie. I'm going to talk from right here since I have to manage the uh, PowerPoint slides. Is this on? Can everybody hear? All right. First of all, I'd like to thank Congressman Kobe and Stenholm for their comments, I think very important comments, and for their tremendous contributions and their passion for this area. This is kind of my area, so I really admire folks. I call them political entrepreneurs, and their comments reflected that, obviously. I am an academic geek, so my, my presentation will be somewhat different. Uh, but I, I, I hope that I'll be able to communicate some important issues that need to be communicated about Social Security and uh, uh, Social Security reform. Uh, before I forget, I need to thank Brandon and Cato staff for always putting up really good events on the Hill and elsewhere, so I really appreciate it. Uh, as everybody knows, Social Security affects almost everybody, all U.S. citizens and residents. And many people are concerned that the program is projected to be insolvent in the not-too-distant future. Um, the trustees of the program released their report, usually by the end of April. This year, they have postponed the release date to the end of June. So we should hear the latest uh, estimates about the program's financial condition in a couple, three, or, three or so weeks. 
Now, given the intergenerational nature of this program, lawmakers are aware that we need to peer into the future as best we can to evaluate its financial status. And so, therefore, the Congress requires the trustees to annually report on Social Security's long-range financial conditions. The standard projection horizon for entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare is 75 years. Uh, And if you read my book, I actually consider 75 years to be an important kind of uh, time horizon to look at, but we should also go beyond that. I'm not going to dwell on this issue right now, but uh, something that I think uh, is even more important, which is what is the Social Security's financial condition and how do these uh, different uh, reform alternatives that people have proposed uh, perform in terms of resolving uh, Social Security's financial imbalances? Now, the trustees' uh, reports and the Social Security website contain seemingly exhaustive information on the program's financial status and about the data and assumptions and all the other inputs that go into evaluating the program's financial condition. There's so much information and so many statistics, actually, that it's really difficult for outside observers and even for experts to really judge whether there may be any important elements that are missing from the trustees' projections and whether their methods are adequate or appropriate to actually you know, correctly or adequately uh, evaluate the program's financial condition. The trustees' methods are subject to an audit, uh, But I've witnessed testimony and a presentation on exactly how the audit is conducted. And I don't have full confidence that those audits uh, would reveal the shortcomings in the trustees' uh, methods. The auditors mostly reconstruct uh, the trustees' projection methods on a spreadsheet. But as you can imagine, if you use the trustees' methods and apply the trustees' assumptions, you're going to get the trustees' results. You're not going to get anything else. So it's not really an adequate method to reveal what might be missing from the trustees' projections. Uh, Another uh, way of checking whether uh, the methods are appropriate is a technical panel that the Social Security Advisory Board uh, appoints every four years to advise the trustees on their assumptions and methods. It's comprised of independent outside academic uh, uh, economists and actuaries and modelers and so on. And they have made recommendations, which I think are very important to take into account, and the trustees should adopt those uh, recommendations, I think. But progress in that area has been excruciatingly slow. And so I would say, effectively, those recommendations have been ignored. So what do we do? I, I think making a careful evaluation of the trustees' methods requires building from the ground up all of the uh, data and inputs and uh, uh, elements that should go into evaluating Social Security's financial conditions. That's what the book does. So we now have a National Commission on Deficit Reduction, uh, and now that we've undergone health care reform, it seems as though they might actually recommend something, uh, to, uh, some changes for Social Security. And so I think delving into these issues is really important at this stage in, in time. So let me just start with my presentation and we'll see. So the last debate we had on Social Security, intensive public debate, was in 2005. And in my humble opinion, it was conducted without sufficient knowledge of reform's uh, effects. The trustees use what is known as a cell-based projection method, which I don't think is satisfactory. And the 2007 technical panel suggests that the trustees' methods should be updated and improved. We have now much more Ability to process data, you know, faster computers and so on, better modeling techniques, those should be used. And the trustees recommend shifting to micro simulations. Uh, but as I said, those, the progress on that has been very slow. The second issue is the measures used to evaluate the effects of alternative reform proposals that we have on the Social Security uh, website are, provide an incomplete picture of how those reforms will affect various population groups, different birth cohorts, and so on. So the book actually implements what the 2007 technical panel recommends, a micro-simulation, which is a detailed projection of U.S. demographic and economic forces into the future. And my results suggest that the mutual evolution of these two types of forces 
has important features that are not, one, not being captured under the trustees' methods and would exert non-trivial effects on the system's financial outlook if they were considered or included. And then once having built this machinery in the computer of projecting U.S. demographic and economic forces into the future, I evaluate six different reform proposals uh, uh, in all their elements, every element individually, and then putting all of them together to see what they would do under the measures that I recommend. They're all in the book, so you should read it if you're inclined to do so. I would really recommend it. So the first question that might arise is, what is this difference between the cell-based and the micro-simulation method? So the first thing to keep in mind is both of these methods essentially tell us the same type of information, same kind of information. They are projections about the future. They're not forecasts or predictions of what will actually happen in the future. They are taking current demographic and economic forces that are operative in the economy today and projecting them into the future. There may be many things that may push those, make those projections turn out to be false. One simple example is future policies on Social Security would be different. Not, those projections do not take into account any speculative ideas that the economist or person doing the exercise has about what policies are likely in the future or what are unlikely. That speculation or conjectural uh, assumptions are off limits for this exercise. So those policies will obviously change what happens in the future, and that's not being taken into account. So this is a projection of current forces into the future. That's, this is a point that many even so-called experts don't uh, think about carefully. So it's continuing current demographic and economic forces and continuing on, on the baseline both uh, these forces and currently scheduled Social Security laws that are in place today. And then once you have this, you can do policy exercises on that machinery. Now, both, so both of these are projections, but micro-simulations are better, I think, because they can more appropriately or more adequately track changes in the distribution of workers' demographic and economic attributes. And I'm going to explain that, what that means in just a minute. But this is not just a matter of adding false precision to our projections. If you take these... Uh, I, if you model these things properly and make the projections properly, then they will add some qualitative difference to, your, uh, to, to the outcomes and the implications for Social Security's financial condition. So let's think about a simple example. We know that labor productivity varies across different workers. The trustees, however, I could say, project only labor quantity, that is the number of workers that would be available in the future, let's say in relative terms, relative to the number of beneficiaries that would be uh, uh, on Social Security's uh, beneficiary list. So in the future, however, we know that the proportion of relatively low productivity workers can increase. It could, it could decrease, it could increase, it could change. So we need to also track labor quality along with labor quantity. Just tracking labor quantity is not sufficient. And labor quality is not just, it's not dependent just on how educated the general population of workers is. Education obviously improves our productivity. More, so we have more educated workers in the future, our productivity would be higher. But that's not enough. Historical information, that is micro-survey data on the U.S. economy, uh, examples of which are current population survey, the panel survey of income dynamics, and all of these data that are available and are in the public domain suggest that all attributes of workers, including things like gender, distributions, age, race, family structure, labor force participation rates, and so on, are associated with workers' labor productivity and uh, their quality. So assuming a constant labor productivity uh, in going into the future is not adequate. We must also project changes in the distribution of workers' attributes as we move along uh, in order to get a uh, more uh, accurate sense of where the system will end up. The key result of the book is changes in these distributions of worker attributes are projected to reduce future labor quality in the U.S., which will obviously reduce our labor productivity and uh, uh, 
therefore have an impact on social security revenues and benefits. So what type of changes am I talking about? For example, fertility differences by group will obviously impact behaviors and outcomes associated with groups that have higher fertility in the, in, in the population. The behavior and outcomes for higher fertility folks will become to dominate over time in the population. Differential mortality across groups, the same logic holds. The behavior and outcomes of uh, people with lower mortality would dominate. And immigration will slow or accelerate this process depending on the types of immigrants that come to the U.S. Similarly, age structure of the population, are, we know the baby boomers are headed for retirement in the next couple of decades, so there'll be a relatively smaller pool of experienced workers in the U.S. That needs to be taken into account. So we need to index workers by their uh, stage of productivity in their life cycle. So baby boomers are currently in their highest earning and highest, productive, highest productivity stage of their life cycle. As they move out, they'll be replaced by workers of same experience, but they'll be smaller relative size. So the overall worker uh, labor quality is going to be uh, reduced in the future. So these changes obviously hold implications. So let me give you a, just a simple example of population structure as I track it in my simulation. So my simulation is called DEMSIM. It stands for Demographic and Economic Micro Simulation. Its historical phase is between 1970 and 2006. It's a detailed calibration and validation based on U.S. microdata of all relevant worker attributes. And fertility and immigration and so on are taken from the census data. Projected simulation is from 2006 onwards. And for taking the population ahead in time, I use the trustees' 2006 assumptions on mortality, fertility, and immigration, and so on. And other demographic and economic variables are projected at the historically observed trends and rates and so on. So this is the 1970... Uh, population distribution, not just by total population, which is the thick black line, but also by subcomponents of the population. So the gray, two gray lines in the middle are married adult, adults in married households. So the solid gray line is females, the dotted gray line is uh, males. The initially vertical and then flat red line, dashed line is uh, single individuals in the, in, the, in the data, which are not related to any, any, anybody else in the, in the population. They're just single individuals. The li- reason the line is very vertical is in 1970, people got married, so they were no longer single. They went into the married pool. The blue line is the uh, single-headed households, so a single head and kids. And the two green lines, the upper green line, the solid green line, is the children of uh, dual-headed households, two heads. And this dashed green line is single-headed households. Now, this is 1970. This is my simulation. And I compare it with the current population survey. You can see that all of the curves, the relative location and everything is kind of very similar. It's not surprising. The current population survey is used to calibrate the model and generate my computer population. But going forward, I apply census mortality fertility. I don't use future current population survey data in order to migrate the population forward in time. But when I do that, I get a very close correspondence between what happens in the current population survey and what happens in my computer simulation. And there are several features of this transition between, now I'm going backwards here, several features of this that is that are very interesting, but I don't think I have time enough to actually tell you everything about it. They're very interesting features. One interesting feature I'll just mention is this vertical red line, uh, dashed line, is single, single individuals. Well, as people began to marry later in life, that curve flattens because they stay single for a much longer time. Another feature is that the number of single-headed individuals increase the blue line, and it goes up because there are more divorces in the population, and so there are more single individuals. Now, people, uh, 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 kids are moved into the adult population at age 18. So you see that single-headed families are basically, they go up to 55, and then after that, the kids are gone, so they then are in the, uh, the single individual, the red line. So you can see all of these transitions. You can see that the baby boom obviously moves forward in the age distribution and so on. So this is 
this is simulation. The DEMSIM simulation is then validated by the current population survey because the two kind of move in tandem. So now I have this simulated in the computer. I can project the stuff forward in time. And now this, these charts go forward every 15 years, and you can see how the population is going to... The baby boomers are going to die off. I'm go, so 2005 onwards, 2020, baby boomers are becoming older. They die off. The echo boom, it dies off too. But look at the, the dashed red line. A lot of single individuals in the economy, because divorce rates go up, marriage, people postpone marriages. And so we're going to have a lot of single individuals in the older ages, which was not true in way back in 1970. There were very few single individuals, but now we're going to have a lot of single individuals in the economy, uh, and also a lot of single-headed individuals. So, but as I take the simulation forward in time, you know, up through 2125, the structure of the population stabilizes in the economy. It's basically the last few... Uh, decades of my simulation that are shown here. Actually, the simulation progresses even further than 2125, but it's, the structure is stable. So the population has reached a steady, kind of steady state, and I can use this population structure in my computer to actually uh, generate a whole lot of other, uh, other characteristics. I do the same type of exercise for simulating and then validating historically all of these other variables, education, labor force participation status, fraction married, fertility, disability, whole, of, whole host of these, all are attributes that inform labor quality. So after I have all this in the computer, I model labor earnings, and I, ne I need a proper calibration of the cross-section distribution of earnings and the growth of earnings over time. All of this stuff is assembled using what is known as a solo growth model. I don't want to get into the details. It's validated historically. I have charts. I don't have time. <laughs> so let me just focus on this chart, which shows labor quantity. So what is labor quantity? Quantity is number of workers per beneficiary. That's a key population ratio that the trustees use to, be, be, to base their future projections on. And as you can see, the blue line and the red line, the dashed lines, are the trustees versus my simulated labor worker to beneficiary ratio. They're fairly close to each other, especially in the initial decades. And that's because to go in the, into the future, I use the trustees' mortality, fertility, and immigration assumptions. So it's not surprising. So my simulated projection of labor quantity is very close to the trustees' labor quantity. However, what I call effective labor input, which is not just labor quantity, but the product of labor quantity and labor quality, where labor quality is determined by worker productivity going forward, which in turn is determined by their attributes, the demographic and economic attributes, those are projected to decline in my simulation. So just looking at labor quantity is not enough. We need to look at effective labor inputs, which is labor quantity in, uh, uh, in conjunction with labor quality. So what kind of changes in the cross-section distribution of worker attributes is going to result in a declining labor quality? Well, the first thing I mentioned, baby boomers are at the highest life cycle earning stage right now. They'll retire through 2030 to be replaced by relatively fewer experienced workers. Changes in family structure and racial composition and labor force participation distributions are also, there's going to be uh, the fraction participating in the workforce declines as this Black line shows that's the labor force participation rate I get, which is declining over time. That's part of uh, what goes into making up labor quality. There are more part-timers and fewer full-timers in the, in the workforce. A gradual dissolution of family structures, as you saw, many more single individuals in the economy, is going to affect people's productivity in the workforce. Uh, so a share of non-family, what I call non-family individuals, increases in the economy. All of these will go towards reducing worker quality, whereas education, more education, more educated workers, education rises over time. The fraction who are more than high school or, more, or have some, uh, some college or more than college increases in my simulation. But that alone doesn't comprehensively determine labor quality. So all these other inputs uh, or worker attributes also determine labor quality. And my simulation <laughs> suggests that on balance, the improvement in labor quality because of better educated workers is going to be counterbalanced and offset, more than offset, by 
the reduction in labor quality because of the changing attributes of the workforce, both demographic and other economic attributes. So I have an index of effective labor input, which is the product of quantity and quality, which shows a declining trend. Uh, now, aggregate labor earnings are going to be determined by effective labor inputs, but also by capital per worker and technological growth. So this A here refers to technology. It's a parameter that controls technological growth. And this is capital per worker. Both of those will uh, make for higher uh, output and earnings in the economy. As you see in this formula on the top, output is a function of technology, technology, capital, and effective labor inputs. And so whereas technology and capital will improve our earnings over time, total earnings and earnings per worker, uh, that improvement will be dragged down by declining labor quality. So essentially my annual growth rate of earnings is considerably slower than the trustees. Mine is about 0.7 percentage points per year, or 71 basis points. The trustees assume 1.1. That's a big difference. So once I have this machinery, once I have all this machinery, I have, I can, I have earnings. I can apply a Social Security benefit calculator and a Social Security tax calculator and come up with Social Security's finances. And my results are in red. The trustees' 2006 results are in gray. As you can see, two features. My imbalance in Social Security is bigger. And it also happens earlier in time because of this bigger bulge in the red lines from, on the benefit profile. Uh, don't want to dwell too much. So bottom line is my imbalance over 75 years is 3.4%. So the actuarial deficit, which is the ratio of the imbalance to total payrolls in the system, trustees' number is 1.7. My number is 3.4, twice as, twice as large. And the infinite horizon imbalance, the trustees' number is 3.5, mine is 4.8. Uh, I also have something called the closed group imbalance, which is a measure that tells us the benefits in excess of payroll taxes that current generations are receiving. Actually, past and current generations would receive under current laws and current projections. So today's beneficiaries who are alive today are projected to receive something like a 10% subsidy to their earnings through Social Security, uh, which is quite a huge subsidy. So we're essentially Social Security is transferring or providing a bigger benefit than payroll taxes paid by living generations under current projections, which means that burden is going to be shifted to our children and grandchildren. And then in the book, I have a whole bunch of measures to evaluate the system's financial condition, both aggregative measures, which is how much does each proposal reduce the 75-year imbalance of Social Security? How much does it reduce the infinite horizon imbalance? And to what extent does each proposal impose fiscal responsibility on current generations? That is, uh, to what extent does that 9.7, how is that 9.7 brought down to a lower number? That is, the, the subsidy that current generations are projected to receive under current laws and current projections, to what extent does changing the laws will, uh, reduce that, that um, uh, free lunch, so to say? I, I can call this a free lunch, right? Uh, then I have micro-measures, which look at how different birth cohorts and different subpopulations in the group, uh, in, in the population, uh, uh, fare, uh, under the baseline and also under different reforms. So I calculate lifetime net tax rates, which is by participating in Social Security, what fraction of your lifetime earnings are you just paying in pure taxes to the government? Turns out the number is around 6%. But different proposals will have different impact. It will change the 6%, either make it higher or lower. I show for different birth cohorts how, how that will how that, change. And the percent of lifetime earnings devoted to retirement. So irrespective of how much taxes people paid in the past, there is interest in figuring out whether Social Security is adequate for retirement. To what extent does, it, does the program serve its adequacy function? So it's basically a measure of Social Security wealth. So it's the present value of your benefits as a share of your lifetime earnings 
So what fraction of your lifetime earnings do you transfer into reti for retirement consumption by participating in Social Security? That's another measure. What's the share of traditional benefits? Because some proposals have individual accounts, so we need to figure out to what extent are individual accounts going to contribute to your retirement wealth versus traditional benefits. And we get different results for different reform proposals. And then, ultimately, a lot of people are interested in, we have benefits promised to us under the current system. Is reform going to cut those benefits? So I calculate the share of payable benefits under the reform compared to scheduled benefits under today's policies. So that's another measure. And then finally, this is Social Security is about social insurance. It's about uh, uh, making sure that you're not short when you're retired. You're, it's a, a, and one of the reasons you might end up short is you face a lot of uncertainty about uh, your uh, career uh, over your lifetime. So to what extent does Social Security reduce lifetime income uncertainty? Uh, and how do different reform proposals impact that reduction that Social Security accomplishes in, in, in lifetime income uncertainty? So these are all the measures. I don't know if I have a lot of time to discuss any of the Just a couple of minutes. So let me show you something about uh, this going to work. Okay, so these are lifetime net tax rates. <coughs> so as I said, this is, sorry, oh, that's okay. Can everybody see that? Or do I need to? Oh. So under the baseline, as I said, lifetime net tax rates are about 6%. And you can see for future cohorts, that is, these are 15-year birth cohorts, and for the future cohorts, the lifetime net tax rates decline a little bit because they're going to be living longer and collecting benefits for longer. So their ta net tax rate is going to be smaller. But different proposals, the Diamond Doors Act proposal raises your lifetime net tax rates to a huge 10% compared to 6%. So mostly it's a tax side solution. Uh, Coalbase Tenon Boyd does a great job, reduces the lifetime net tax rate through Social Security. Uh, the other proposals, Liebman, McGinnis, Samvik, uh, has relatively higher lifetime net tax rate, but not too much higher, and so on. So these type of measures, comparing, essentially setting a horse race between different proposals is the kind of information we want in order to decide what do we want to do. So all the measures that I talked about should be published, and the evaluation should be in terms of these measures that, I, that can be easily communicated. Instead, we have, I think, relatively terse and fairly... Uh, uh, inaccessible reports uh, on these different reform proposals and their effects. So I think hopefully my book will uh, get us to putting out these measures regularly and uh, restart the debate on kind of more accessible and more in terms of better, uh, 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 more meaningful uh, debate on the effects of reforms.